This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I am your host, Mike Rappin. Joining me this week, two immortal beasts bound to serve queen and country in return for vague pardons, Paul Jaceley. Ho, 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 humanoids. And Kara Shimborski. <laughs> I don't even know how to top that. How do you, how do you top <laughs> ho, 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 humanoids? I don't know. It's it's the perfect time of the year to be saying it because this is episode 354 of I Read Comic Books, and today we're going to be talking about comics. But before we get into that, we've got a quick announcement. On December 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard, Danny, Brian, and I are going to be going live for the first ever I Read Comic Books live on Twitch and YouTube. So if you're not subscribed over on the Twitch, if you're not subscribed over on YouTube and you want to watch an episode of I Read Comic Books live and see all of the wild shenanigans that Danny and Brian and I are going to be pulling out of our butts you should definitely show up to that. Uh, it's going to be a, a wild time. We're trying things out because, as I said last week on the show, we're doing something huge for the annual, and we really want to make sure that we get all the technical things flattened out before we do that. So make sure to check that out on December 27th at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard. It's going to be really, really fun. But today, we're going to be talking about our Goodreads Book of the Month. We had a specific theme in mind, and I apologize in advance because I'm a little hungover. I watched The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen last night in preparation for today's show, and boy, oh, boy, do I not feel great? So let's, before we get into that, let's talk about comics that we've read, comics that we're excited for. And I've got two legally mandated questions that I need to ask. And that is, how have you been? How have comic books been? Let's start with you, Paul. Well, Mike, we have a West Michigan weather watch update for you. It's basically <laughs> snowed all day Saturday here. Um, so we mm. got, I haven't, so I didn't leave the house at all. So I didn't go to the comic shop because there was about seven inches of snow on the ground that I didn't want to deal with. So, um, but your lack of you know, dedication is kind of surprising. I'm just going to say that. Uh. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, but luckily, there were plenty of comics me laying around my apartment for me to read. So I read a few things I want to talk about, one of which is Superman Cal L Returns special number one. Um, and as that mm. title suggests, this is about the return of Big Blue. As it says right on the cover here, Big Blue is back. Um, so those of you who are not keeping up. <laughs> with superman comics uh basically superman has spent the past few months uh leading an uprising against mongol on war world i don't know all the details i'm not reading superman comics sure. regularly but paul um yes that, that sounds like planet hulk this sounds like planet hulk <laughs> yeah <laughs> but this Having... is superman so it's completely different so <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> different strong person with feelings yes Okay, continue. Uh, In my head, he's got yeah, like the, the Centurion helmet and lots of muscles. Go on. <laughs> right. Uh, regardless, um, so he's been off planet for a while. Uh, his son, Jonathan Kent, has been watching over things as the new Superman. But this comic, of course, is basically an anthology of different stories about Superman coming back, meeting up with old friends. Um, there's a couple of stories in here that kind of stood out to me that I want to mention. First one is written by Mark Wade with art by Clayton Henry, and it's about Superman meeting up with his old best friend, Batman, and they have to fight, I did not expect this, they had to fight Mr. Nobody from the Doom Patrol series, <laughs> awesome. who has transported the concert goers who were rioting after the debut performance of Rite of Spring in 1913, transported them to modern city Gotham, so they're running amok in the city. Yeah, sure. that's the kind of stuff I that's, want in my comics. That's uh, a, I don't even know, that's such a deep cut, I don't even know what level that's on. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So that's right up my alley when that guy shows up and then they're they have that level of uh um pop culture deep cut reference. Um so it's a pretty fun little story. They have to compete compete against uh Mr. Nobody. Um 
there's a point where they're trying to figure out how to defeat Mr. Nobody. And Superman's like, look, I fight Mr. Mr. Pitalik all the time. I can do nonsensical. So yeah, it's a fun little, I mean, it's a Mark <laughs> Wade team up story. It's kind of perfect for that. Uh, the other one that kind of stood out to me is, was written by Cine Grace with art by Dean Haspel. Um, and it's about Jimmy Olsen trying to get the perfect photo of Superman to announce that he's back. You know what I mean? So they, He's capturing all these classic action poses. Superman rescuing people. He's like, I've seen these photos a hundred times. I need to get something more special. Uh, but really, the best thing about this story is that Dean Haspel draws Superman like basically having like a spider sense moment a couple times in the story, where like all of a sudden he looks shocked and like the S hair curl that Superman <laughs> has stands like straight up. Ah! <laughs> And Jimmy says, uh, what's wrong, Superman? Are you okay? And he's like, oh, I, there was an amber alert about 100 miles from here, but the Flash took care of it. Don't worry about it. So it's like those, that little moment was enough for me to enjoy that little little story there. Being Superman must be, must be so exhausting if you're just like constantly getting all of this information that you're sorting through and deciding like triage. Like I know in DC Comics, historically, yeah. we get characters like Oracle being like the command center, but... It sounds kind of like it would be the most efficient if Superman was just doing it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> he can literally hear everything. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. yeah. Um, and then very briefly, there's a, the last story in here is about uh, Superman um, going back to the Justice League headquarters and having lunch with everybody at the food court that they have there, um, which I thought was pretty hmm. delightful. That was written by Alex Segura with art by Fico Osio. So I'm a sucker for like fun little Superman stories. And this book had a few of them. So not the most uh not the most groundbreaking comic i've read but certainly enjoyable to read on a sunday morning yeah i've been i've been sitting on this issue for a minute because i have been reading the superman son of kal-el which is oh yeah really fun i really enjoy that book i'm not a superman reader 100 percent, and yet tom king or not tom king tom taylor can pretty much get me to like any damn superhero in the world i kind of find that like aggravating almost because i don't need to like all these characters all right i'm right fucking sick of buying all these comic books okay uh <laughs> And yet Tom Taylor does it every time. Uh, I, I really am liking the son of Kal-El, but I didn't realize yeah. that this was more of like a Superman anthology. But I'm, I'm all for that because you've, you've sold me in the fact that there's some <laughs> wild stuff in there. Um, and I do appreciate a good like can like short, short form, like little mini comics yeah. almost about these superheroes rather than 32 pages of like get into this super drama, which most, you know, DC comics when they're like at a certain level end up being. Yeah, I don't. I don't ever gravitate towards Superman comics because they tend to be Superman has to punch the bad guy. The bad guy's even oh. bigger and badder. <laughs> the bad guy is awful. Yeah, Superman needs to fly and crash through buildings. And it's like Superman is a Midwestern farm boy turned journalist. And I'm sure his life besides the punching is way more interesting than the punching part. And like, where is <laughs> sure. that? So uh, yeah. the, the food court segment of this story <laughs> that you've shared makes me actually interested. I'm like, yes, this is why I read comic fan fiction instead of comics, because in comic fan fiction, you're like, let's go to a coffee shop and like hang out and vibe. And in the comics are like Superman smash. So yeah, right. I mean, trust me, if I can see Superman and his pal Jimmy Olsen eating a pretzel on top of the Daily Planet building, like that's what I want from a Superman comic. So, right. And this delivers right. that. So. Oh, wonderful. That's awesome. <laughs> well, Kara, what about you? How have you been? How have comic books been for you? Well, Mike, I'm so glad you asked because after years of people telling me to watch the Harley Quinn animated show on HBO Max, I, f I finally started. And, um, we did it, everyone. We did it. 
<laughs> you were all right. No, okay. So the thing was, I started. I watched the first like two episodes, and I was like, "Oh, okay, I get it. They they drop a lot of f bombs, and there was some more gore, whatever. Like, I'll keep watching, but I'm sure it's fine." I was way too grumpy and jaded about that. It's delightful if you can handle <laughs> cursing and extreme violence. Like, just the the repartee that the characters have. Like, the writing on this show is totally aces, and the um just like the voice actors they got are top tier like they're so good um in the first few episodes uh definitely my favorite character so far is poison ivy has a uh plant named i think frank and it's basically like the like monster in um musical that i'm totally blanking on the name of little shop of horrors that one it's like the little yeah. shop of horrors creature but like living in her fancy apartment and providing sassy like side commentary to whatever's happening mm-hmm. and every time he opens his like venomous mouth i burst out laughing because <laughs> it's just like great <laughs> comedic timing um anyway so and that was and that was nice because i haven't read a dc comic book in a while and i definitely have a certain like type of dc story that i like and this is one of them because it's very character driven and it's all about like the character interactions with each other and kind of like mm-hmm. the episode that I saw last night was uh, Harley Quinn is trying to be taken seriously as a supervillain. So she tries to find a nemesis and she's trying to like bait the Batman into being her nemesis. But instead <laughs> she gets Robin and it's Damian Wayne yeah. voiced by like the most tiny little shit voice you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and everyone's treating him like, oh, that's so cute, Damian. You got my first nemesis. And he's like pouting to his dad. He's like, dad, all the Teen Titans have a nemesis. Why can't I? And you're just like, oh, my God. <laughs> I'm like, yes, this is what I want from a DC comic. Thank you for providing it in a DC TV mm-hmm. show. So that, and then in like what sounds like a direct contrast to what Paul read this week, um, I read uh, Marvel Zombies Christmas Carol, which is just so, first of all, why? Who made this? Yeah. For what reason? First of all, <laughs> hold on. First of all, why did you pick this? Like, <laughs> well, Mike. Tis the season, and I'm a sucker for Christmas. In the month of December, I only want to consume Christmas media. This has been a challenge this year because I also want to keep listening to the Taylor Swift Midnight's album. But instead, it's all Christmas music until like mid-January for me. So this extends to my comic book reading. This is the moment where I'm going to say, tune in next week, y'all, for the very special Christmas mini-sode I do with Danny, where we talk about more Christmas comic books to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. So nice. I basically, like, I've been playing a game this month where you go onto Hoopla and you search Christmas and then you filter by comic books and you see what comes up. And today, mm, okay. <laughs> Zombie Christmas Carol <laughs> came up. Now, I don't like zombie comic books. I don't find them interesting. I don't I'm not like into the whole like gory aspect. The thought of not dying and being like a half shell of your former self while you slowly decay in the sun, I feel like would get old. Like I understand the Walking Dead has been going on for a million years and that's the whole concept, mm-hmm. but I'm like, God, who cares? <laughs> like give me a morally reprehensible vampire werewolf smash up any day, but zombies, I'm just like not into it. But I was curious to see like how they would zombify a Christmas Carol because the Christmas Carol, your supernatural moment is ghosts with vague 
time travel or flashback or dreamscape mentions. So I'm like, <laughs> okay, how are you going to turn this into zombies? How are you going to, and when's Iron Man going to show up? This feels like a thing where Marvel would try to like <laughs> right. say like, it's a Christmas Carol, but like the Muppets where all your favorite characters are playing the role. So I was kind of expecting that going in. I was, sure. I was expecting like, um, Oh, Scrooge is going to be Victor Von Doom and the Fantastic Four are going to be <laughs> the ghosts no, of Christmas No, no, no. You're, you're, think- yeah. you're thinking okay. way too hard about this, I think. <laughs> but, like, I would have loved that comic. That comic would have right. been great. <laughs> this one was just, like, I I appreciate that they thought the overlap between people who like Christmas and people who like zombies would have been significant enough to warrant a whole comic book series about this. But mm-hmm. since I'm not very interested in zombie comics, I was just kind of like, okay, not for me. There's no Marvel characters in this. And honestly, I'm really impressed about that because I was expecting that to be the easy selling point for this. Mm-hmm. But now I'm just thinking about what could have been with like a Muppet Christmas Carol version of Marvel Zombies Christmas Car- Carol, where you just like have all the characters inhabiting the tropes. Like I want that comic book. That is what Wait, so- given. So this comic is Christmas Carol, but there's zombies. That's it. Yeah, it's like it's strange. Like for example, so, for example, in the part in a Christmas Carol. Uh, spoilers for the one of the most famous stories in the English speaking <laughs> canon. Stop, stop. Stop. Just continue. If somehow you have not seen a single version of a Christmas Carol, Scrooge McDuck is a grumpy miser. No, no, no. Wait. <laughs> Grumpy. That is not who's in the story. <laughs> grumpy old money grubbing man in London has been a grumpy old money grubbing man for his entire life, and it's caused him to be old and miserable and alone. And on Christmas Eve, he's sure. visited by three ghosts who try to show him the error of his ways and how to embrace the true spirit of Christmas and redeem himself before he dies and gets consigned to eternal hell, like his um, business partner who visits him first to say like you got to straighten out man so in <laughs> marvel zombies christmas carol things happen like he goes to christmas present with the ghost of christmas present who's like enormous and jovial and's got very dionysian like crown flowing robes like horn of plenty opulence stuff and the end of the issue is the enormous ghost of Christmas present getting devoured by zombies from the inside out. Like, why? To what end? <laughs> what does this accomplish? Except to say, because this is a zombie zombies. comic. Yeah. Anyways, yeah. so if you enjoy <laughs> zombie comics and zombie tropes, and you also enjoy Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, give this a whirl. If you do not like these things, hard pass. This is my this is my thought for you all. And just think of what might have been. 2011 was a wild time for Marvel, I think. That's that's pretty much what I'm hearing. I'm, I'm just going to move on. I, I I feel like I have so many more questions. Like, you, you gave me more questions than answer with that response. So, uh, anyways, I have been... Uh, I've been all right. I haven't read as many comics as I'd like because I have been, I don't know, distracted with TikTok and this game vampire survivors i can't stop playing it on my phone i can't stop playing it on my computer uh but i uh 
Yeah, I did read some comics, though. I did read a handful of books. I read uh, after last week's episode, I sat down. Paul mentioned this. He this was his pick last week. Tech, that Texas Blood number 20, I think. And I was like, you know what? I've been sitting on that Texas Blood volume one for forever. Nick had recommended it to me a long time ago, and I picked it up and never read it. It's Jacob Phillips. It's Chris Condon. Um, ultimately, this book was really cool. I was really sucked into it. I thought it was awesome from start to finish. Um, the first issue was probably the best hook for a comic book you could have like from an image book where it's just like this is everything you need to know about all of the main characters of this story, um, particularly Mr. Joe Bob, the chief uh, of police. And uh, I, I love the slow build that the, the volume gives us. Uh, I did feel like there was some seemingly out of left field murderous intent that maybe was a bit rushed for the story. But overall, I felt despite that, it was a really good book. Jacob Phillips, stupendous artist. I mean, I can't wait for the next volume of New Burn. Between him balancing that Texas blood and New Burn, like, I think you've got like two incredible comics that are coming out. I worry, though, that he's burning himself out the same way that Dan Mora is burning himself out, where like somehow every week there's like three books with his name on it. And I don't understand how that's even possible. Uh, but nonetheless, I can see why folks really dig this. Um, it's super straightforward. It's slow in a way that's almost a relief compared to other kind of in real life crime-ish comics. I don't want to say that like Brubaker and Phillips tell stories that are too fast paced or too weird or whatever, but I did like the just slow, just constant like beat of this book as it moved forward mm -hmm. and forward and forward. The pacing's really good. That's pretty much what I'm getting at. Like Chris Condon, very good at, at building his story in a way that when it amps up, you don't feel surprised by anything. And yeah, I, I love Joe Bob. <laughs> as a character just that <laughs> that well being his whole character being every that, mm -hmm. everything that he says just is can be either like punctuated with him just saying well like he doesn't he's not saying yes or no it's just this weird thing that i was kind of thrown by at first but by the end of the volume i was like i found to be really endearing so um, i appreciate you reminding me of this paul and i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. nick for not reading this sooner <laughs> well it's so funny because like that first volume like does such a good job of setting the the pace of the story and the, mm -hmm. the place of it. But as it goes on, like it becomes a much more complex, like it basically becomes a horror comic after this volume, which I think is really interesting. Right. right. But it's the, the pacing it's paced like an old, like slasher movie kind of, you know, that sort of like yeah. slow ominous pace. And what's great is because a lot of the following stories are set in the past. You get to see how Joe Bob became the person he is in that first volume. You know what I mean? Oh, cool. Get more of like the way he is in that first volume is because of everything he lived in these the next stories. So, mm -hmm. and what's nice too is like the book. There's like built-in breaks because I know they're gonna be off for a few months to come back. Kind of just maybe just let the artist you know catch up, you know, get some time to breathe. Mm -hmm. But it kind of helps with that because it's like it goes hard and heavy at certain points, and then kind of step back and relax for a few months before it comes back to the story. So, I'm glad you read it. It's one of my favorite comics coming out right now. So enjoy the ride. Yeah, no, I'm I'm super hyped to read more of it. Like, I think at this point I'm reading it just in volumes, so I'm probably going to be behind. But regardless, like five issue arcs, six issue arcs, you know, that's that's great. And if we get a volume a year, it's kind of like that's the pace that I want on a lot of this stuff. Like, sure. it's exactly like the reckless books, right? Like you yeah. get a you get a yeah. volume every couple of months. You're kind of like, hell yeah, this is what I need. <laughs> I don't have to worry about a month to month thing. It feels really good. Um, and I feel like that's the same with a book like this as well. Like, again, and this is how I feel about a lot of image books, where if I could just get them in collections and then not have to read them month to month, like sometimes their stories are so big and so like complex and there's a lot of pieces that you need to keep track of. Mm -hmm. Reading them in batches is almost better in that way. Now, like this goes sure. back to the thing that I said a couple weeks ago where 
Ryan Brown, we were, he was taught interviewing, getting interviewed on another podcast. And he said, somebody said like, well, why didn't you take something like 8 billion genies and just publish it as a graphic novel? And he's like, well, then people are only going to talk about our book once when instead I can have them talk about it for eight weeks um, or eight months. Yeah. Right. Which is really an interesting thing that I never considered. Um, and again, I'm, I'm bringing it up. I know I'm rehashing, but just like, it's funny because I like that idea of like, sure, it's great that that book's coming out every month and people are talking about it every month. But at the same time, as a reader, like I don't I like 8 billion genies, but I'm really not following it month to month. I think it's going to read so much better as a collected edition because it's just going to be like eight seconds, eight minutes, eight hours, like that whole like bam, 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 like pacing that that book already has. Like the momentum on that book is extremely fast because of the ridiculous nature of it. Right. I think it would read better as an OGN, but I know that it's important for them to sell it every month because of that reason. So it's like, there's this weird back and forth thing. It's totally flipped my whole notion of comics should just, some of these comics should just be OGNs like on its head because I now see that that is painful for you as an artist. If your book doesn't sell well in yeah. that first week, you're SOL, dude. And especially <laughs> if it comes to pre-orders and people taking risks and yada, yada, yada. So I, want, I don't know. Go ahead, Kara. I wonder if some of that is also just comics are not marketed well at all in general so like sure, if you sure. no, no, no mm -hmm. but okay if you go to a comic shop regularly and you're seeing the wall of new floppies every single week you are getting the marketing in the form of seeing those floppies every week so even if you mm -hmm. are not reading superman you're seeing a superman title every week so that's in your head when you're thinking about comics because i think the the thing is, like, you have to see something like three times for it to stick. That's like a thing that you use in screenwriting and also in, in marketing tactics. You get the repetition and then you're basically like breaking down people's like aversion to paying for something because they're like, oh, well, I keep seeing this book. I might as well get it. So right. if you're getting those eight issues of that book and you're seeing it over and over again, eventually you might say, oh, that's in my brain. I'm thinking of that. Oh, the trade yeah. came out. I've, I've seen that book. But that could also be perhaps counteracted by better marketing like are is your publisher advertising your book in like in a i was gonna say magazine and then i remembered i'm the only person who still reads paper ones but like you know can you do like can you do like a like a tiktok ad or can you like do well, like a poster yeah, in a big yeah. on the side of a bus in a big city right. and like you know and i know that that's not something that comics can really has really done effectively in the past or you still get the barrier of like, okay, well, how do you reach a casual reader and get them to actually like find a comic book store or like mm -hmm. find a place to buy digital comics and care enough to get it. Mm -hmm. But I don't think it's fair to say you have to keep doing monthly releases in order to get people to talk about your book. That just means that your publisher is not doing a good marketing campaign for you. Right. Right. Sure. I mean, Speaking of repetition, I mean, you can always go to patreon.com slash IRCB podcast if you want to uh, <laughs> support the show. Uh, no, I, I think that that's uh, that's a whole other thing. I, I think last week on the show, I think I gave Danny uh, some shit for saying he's like, oh, I watched the trailer for a, 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 a comic. And I was like, who watches those? Right. Danny. But Image does make Danny. those for some of their books. I don't know how well they do. But they're not marketed to me. And I read a lot of comic books. You think I'd be the primary market, right? Then again, that's not how the algorithms on the various sites work. But we're before we go too Regardless. deep into this, we have a we have a rest <laughs> of a show we need to get to. Um, Paul, what's one other book you read sure. really quick? I got one more, and then we can jump into the top five. Yeah, yeah. Um, I read Black Cloak number one. This is a new series from Image, written by Kelly Thompson with art by Meredith McLaren. Uh, we got an advanced copy of this first issue, so this was actually going to be coming out on January 11th. Full disclosure. 
This is an oversized first issue like Image usually does. And the sort of blank meets blank elevator pitch for the book is that it's Blade Runner meets Saga. And I think that's pretty accurate. It's a sci-fi story with a lot of uh, fantasy elements, kind of what you get with Saga. It's set 100 years um, after a seemingly world-ending war that took place. Uh, Things are relatively at peace, and it's set in a city called Kairos. And because the world at large is relatively at peace, no one has like a big enemy. So everyone's kind of turning against each other. So crime is on the rise in this city. Of course. And uh, the Black Cloaks, um, who are the focus of the book, are basically detectives and we get the sense throughout this first issue that the citizens at large do not like them. They're not trusted. You know, ACAB for these guys, uh, all cloaks are black. I don't know how I don't know how to make that work anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but they are investigating the murder of a beloved prince. And uh, one of the detectives, one of the black cloaks, has a personal connection to the victim. So we kind of get an interesting way to build the story. And like what I liked about this issue is that it's not a genre I particularly would gravitate towards, but. Thompson is such a good writer that she's able to do so much world building and setting up relationships between characters without ever relying on like a big info dump or exposition. There's only a couple like little brief introduction on the first page where you get the sense of like what's going on. The rest is all told through dialogue between the characters, uh, which I really thought was really well done. And what's interesting, too, is like the world is a very big world. There's a mix of sci-fi and fantasy. Like I said, there's mermaids who play a large part in this, and they seem like weirdly terrifying like there's a lot of things about how mermaids are actually like uh, pretty dangerous uh Dude, they're, <laughs> yeah. look, looking at the cover of this book yeah it they look terrifying <laughs> yeah, exactly uh there are wraiths there's magic it's all sorts of stuff but again it all sort of balances out thanks to the way that thompson and mclaren build the world i do want to mention you know one of the characters the main character phaedra essex that character has the sort of tough loner with a past they're running from sort of vibe it reminded me of the detective characters that Greg Rucka writes, you know, if you've read Stumptown or if you've read Black Magic, the sort of female detective character, it has that same vibe. So I, I gravitate toward that kind of character in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, overall, I want to say McLaren's artwork is really unique. At first, I did not yeah. like it. Um, it has a sort of like video game cell shading sort of vibe. I think that's what you call that. You know what I mean? Yeah, I can see that. It's, yeah. It's very flat to the page. But as the book went on, I grew to like it more and more the way that they were able to sort of draw the more fantastical elements in a sort of grounded way, even though it looks unreal, the sort of artwork, it's not super realistic. It totally worked though. As the book went on, I got, I got more and more into it and kind of appreciated the sort of mix of alien and futuristic art that she was able to do there. So mm-hmm. again, it's a genre that I normally wouldn't gravitate towards. I'm not a big fantasy person and I kind of like different types of sci-fi, but I really appreciate the world building. I grew to like the artwork and it ends with a huge, huge cliffhanger. So I might have to stick around and if not grab issue two, stick around and grab the trade when it comes out. So this again mm-hmm. comes out January 11th and that's a big selling point for me. It's a fantasy book that I really enjoyed. So might might be your uh, your mileage. Well, you are the last person I ever would have thought <laughs> to pick this book up, Paul, honestly. Sure. <laughs> Look at us all getting outside of our comfort zones, me reading zombies, <laughs> Paul reading fantasy, but yeah. also like... Look. You know, slightly sliding ahead a little bit. I'm going to add that to the top of my pile. Like, you completely sold me sure. on this one. Okay. And fantasy oh, yeah. is my wheelhouse. So let's just <laughs> add that to my list. Thank you. Yeah, I skimmed, I skimmed through this PDF, uh, which, again, I appreciate the folks over at Image sending this to us. It is a, it is such a cool-looking book. Like, yeah. I, I personally love this art style. Like, this is the type of art style that I would want someone to draw, like, a tattoo for me to, like, put on my body. Because, sure. like... 
they're like the thick, super thick, bold lines, but then like the lineless shading and and there's the, a style that's out there that's like lineless coloring that a lot of people do where like mm-hmm. uh, Danny, I think you and I talked about this uh, a while ago. Uh, Danny was in the chat, also proof listening today. So I just assume he's on the show when he's paying attention. Uh, <laughs> but uh, we talked about like the, there are artists out there who do this like lineless coloring that is very hard to, to master. And it's such a cool style. But if you do it wrong, it looks really bad. Um, and I think that this uh, McLaren does a fantastic job of this because while they put really bold lines around like the outside of things, uh, the in- inner shading and coloring is really precise. I, maybe they didn't do the colors on this. It might have been Becca Carey who did the colors on this. But okay. regardless, the style is so cool looking. I really, really like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a surprising book for me. So again, glad to get a uh, first copy. So I'll definitely pick up the next one. Yeah. Uh, well, let me jump into one more book that I read. Uh, I talked, as always, I'm obsessed with Chainsaw Man. So I read, I, I've been behind on the series. I read chapters 109 through 113. This is Tatsuki Fujimoto. If you don't know what Chainsaw Man is, do just a quick Google search. I promise you will either love it or hate it. There's no middle ground on this book. Uh, the anime is awesome. And at, since I've been watching the anime, my like love for this series has been reinvigorated because I forgot how stupid and fun the first couple of story arcs in this series is. Uh, so yeah, this manga is very dumb. The story continues to be very dumb, and I love that. Like the premise right now is that Chainsaw Man, after all of the craziness that happened in the first what they're calling like half or first chunk of the uh, series before they took uh, Tatsumo or Tatsuki took a like break for the series, uh, we comes back and Denji is nowhere to be found. Instead, we've been following this other character for a while, and all of the things have been amped up to end this arc that's happening. And the core of it is that Denji is in the story, but he's not the focal point for some reason, at least not yet. And he wants to everyone to know that he's Chainsaw Man, but the agency that he works for doesn't want anybody to know that he's Chainsaw Man. Wait. So no one believes him when he says he's Chainsaw. It's really stupid and it's really fun. And yeah, I just I love this series. I don't know what I expected. Like they, it allowed the story or the, or the creator to basically take Denji, the main character, and insert him into a school type story. So now Denji goes to high school. And before that, he never went to school. He was dumb. He didn't know how to read. He's grew up on the streets because reasons the move. This, this, it's really dumb. Wait. Anyways, uh, but I love this and I love the the action that we got in this most recent arc. And finally, we got to see Chainsaw Man doing Chainsaw Man stuff. And now all I can hear is like anytime denji turns into chainsaw man with like the saws start coming out of his arms and out of his head uh all i can hear is that theme song over and over and i think that that's great so they've mappa has done a fantastic job of you know combining their style with the anime so in the manga so so that was my question because i think i know what you're talking about because i'm on twitter and a few weeks ago (laughs) everyone was just like this man with a chainsaw out of his head so like picture a narwhal but instead of a whale with a horn it's a man with a chainsaw (laughs) yeah pretty much okay so when you were saying oh but nobody knows who he is i'm like what are you talking about he has a huge chainsaw sticking out of his head but you're saying he can retract the chainsaws yeah like wolverine's claws they can go inside again if you read the manga you would know (laughs) uh so if yeah danny just posted a perfect picture so denji is a human but he made a deal with a demon in the story to basically absorb the demon's power which is a little the little dog that you see on the show i've got a pin that i'm showing everybody on camera here of the little little puchita who is a Mm. tiny little orange dog with a chainsaw coming out of his head he's the chainsaw demon 
And so when Denji dies or gets injured at one point, he makes a deal with this demon. And he's like, well, I'll be your new heart. And Denji's like, okay, whatever. And then now he can pull this chainsaw trigger in his chest and he becomes the chainsaw man. And then when he runs out of blood, essentially, he turns back into his human form. Two things. It's okay. <laughs> one, this is Moon Knight. You are describing Moon Knight. Yes. <laughs> okay. Pretty much. Okay. Um, two, I thought the whole it's Morbin time thing was talking about Jared Leto <laughs> Morbius. It is. Wait, it is. So it's Morbin time, but also about Chainsaw Man. Well, okay. So at this point, like the picture five... that Danny posted in our chat is like five memes. <laughs> five deep, memes deep. I think. <laughs> yeah. 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 Where, you know, it's Morbin time is the joke subtitle that someone put on a, cl- a screenshot from Morpheus. Okay. Morbius. 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 <laughs> but uh, it we're gonna so move many, on so many uh, layers so <laughs> i feel educated thank you i know yes, more about the internet on. now <laughs> go watch the chainsaw man anime and if you don't like episode one you're gonna hate the rest of it that's pretty much what Perfect. i'll say okay. um and that's pretty much how i tell people how to like approach that manga in general is if you don't like the first two or three chapters you're gonna hate the rest of it i'm certain of it but anyways let's let's move on let's talk about comics that we're excited to read next comics that are on the top of our pile whether it's new or old paul kara and i have all picked a book that we're going to be reading next so let's just jump right into things kara What's on the top of your pile? I know you just said, but what else are you thinking about reading? <laughs> okay. Well, like, like I said, December is all Christmas all the time for me. And I am very much a creature of habit when it comes to Christmas. So I like revisiting media about Christmas that I already know that I like. Sometimes new stuff sneaks in. For example, last year, not comics related, Carly Rae Jepsen's absolute bop. It's not Christmas till somebody cries. Made my Christmas canon. <laughs> <laughs> highly recommend listening to that song it is amazing how did i miss that last year oh my god it's gosh. not christmas till somebody cries it's so fun and you listen to the lyrics and it's stuff like grandpa ate my special gummies and unwrapped everyone's presents <laughs> like stuff like that it's pretty great so um anyway so part of my christmas comic book canon is uh reading these like delightful Disney Christmas comic books. Uh, I know many times on the show the last couple of years, I've been going on and on about Carl Barks's work, especially with the ducks, especially since I got into watching the DuckTales reboot on Disney Plus. But the Christmas comics are have a special place in my heart. Um, there are many of them collected in different collections. Uh, Fanographics has a few like Christmas specific collections or they have a couple collections where the christmas stories are front loaded in the book full of um other non-christmas stories and again they're just great all ages adventure comics with really lovely um style and pacing and sense of motion and um the disney comics are way more popular in europe than they are in america and so they Mm -hmm. get i think more specialized collections so um, my turn to put my glasses up my nose. A few, uh, several years ago, when I was in France, <laughs> when I was in Paris oh. during the Christmas season Ooh, oh. and wanted to Uh-oh. get myself a souvenir, um, I got a, a French uh, language version Christmas collection of some Karl Barks duck stories. And I will definitely be rereading that one because uh, my fa- my favorite story in that one has Donald Duck and Scrooge basically battling for the affections of Huey, Dewey, and Louie by getting them the perfect Christmas gift. And they hear the the little boy duck saying like, man, I really want a 
I don't I don't know the English word because I just keep reading the French word for it. What's the... just just say it in French. This <laughs> the, fine. <laughs> no, the the like the backhoe for on a construction site, the thing that like scoops into the ground and yeah. a backhoe. I don't I know. It's called a backhoe. Is, Is it, it a backhoe? A backhoe? Okay. Yeah. All right. So that thing. So the boys are like, I want a backhoe for Christmas. And Scrooge is like, great, I'll buy you one. And he buys them a backhoe when they really meant they wanted a toy backhoe. So it's like, oh. sure. okay. so I just want you to picture Scrooge McDuck and Donald Duck like racing through Duckburg with these giant backhoes trying to race each other to like giving them to the kids first. Like this is Delightful. the level of zany hijinks that we're on. Um, Amazing. And then again, reading several other Christmas themed comic books for my uh, Christmas comic theme minisode with Danny. That's uh, dropping into your feeds next week. So um, to find out what else I'm reading, give that a listen. Great. You know, I looked. I've been googling how to say some words in French. Is is the word they use tractopel? Is that the word? No. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna try to say it the French way. But <laughs> I just searched for backhoe and it says tractopel. Uh, <laughs> Cis Noël, uh, Merry Christmas. That's how they say it in French. Uh, Paul, what? what about you? It was pelleteuse. It's pe- oh, okay. pelleteuse is the word they use. Um, I've just checked okay. out the English. Tra- oh. The English translation is excavator. It's not a backhoe. Oh, the okay. proper okay. word is okay. excavator. Now we know. The more you know. Now we know. Fla- flash that little swoopy rainbow across the screen. Yeah, you you cannot say the show is not educational. So <laughs> I learned um, so much from reading children's comic books, guys. Yes, um, I'm also reading a vaguely Christmas related book. Um, top of my pile for this week is Friday Book Two: A Cold Winter's Night. This is the second Friday book. These are comics written by Ed Brubaker with art by Marcos Martin and colors by Munsta Vicente. I absolutely love the first volume of this, which is entitled the first day of Christmas because it's set during Christmas time. Mm-hmm. Uh, it basically follows the title character Friday Fitzhugh, who's a college student. She was turning to her hometown for Christmas and she gets swept up into a mystery with her old friend, Lancelot Jones, who is the smartest boy in the world. Um, kind of, it's a mix of sort of young adult detective story. So like Lancelot Jones is clearly just Encyclopedia Brown. You know what I mean? That, mm-hmm. that character, but it's set in, like uh, New England in the sort of 70s, I think. That's the time frame here. And what Brubaker does is kind of takes that sort of kid detective fiction framework and marries it with the sort of tradition of horror stories from New England. When you think about, you know, the Lovecraft stories or any Stephen King story that's set there, like there's a sort of a strange, you know, mystery element to that time, that place that Brubaker's you know, using for the story. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to give any spoilers for the first volume, which, you know, again, involves Lancelot Jones reuniting with Fritz F- Friday Fitzhugh. Turns out they had a long uh, history together as kids solving crimes. She moved away to college. He stayed home. So there's some tension there when she comes back. That mm. first volume ends with like a big cliffhanger, like something pretty tragic happens that I won't spoil. So I think this volume, we get to see more of Friday dealing with that, sort of trying to unravel this mystery and dealing with the grief from the events of that first issue. I, I really love this stuff. Again, Marcos Martin is just an incredible artist. It's unreal yeah. how good this book looks. Yeah. It's set during winter, Christmas time. So there's a lot of like white spaces, negative space, but somehow uses that to tell the story. It's a lovely comic. And uh, I'm very excited to read the second volume of it. 
Yeah, same. I I have this pick, ready to pick up at my shop. I think either this from last week or this upcoming mm-hmm. week. And uh, yeah, I'm super hyped. I I never got around to reading the first book last year. So I think once I get the <laughs> second one, like I, I'm taking off the week between Christmas and New Year's, right? Okay. Um, which no one should be working that week. I'm just gonna say that that week should just be a no man zone. Like no person should work. Uh, <laughs> exactly. n- stop all commerce. I don't care. Uh, but anyways, yeah, that week I think I'm gonna read this as well as some other stuff. But let me talk. Speaking of another book that I'm going to definitely be reading during that break, if not immediately as soon as I get my hands on it, Villain Saga Volume 13. But I, I totally forgot to do the Discord picks. So let me just do those really quick. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thank you to everyone hanging out with us live today. I really appreciate it. I promise. Uh, folks hanging out with us today. Danny is reading Dark Crisis on Infinite Earth number seven. And Matt is reading Gold Goblin number two, which I thought was like from some weird independent publisher. No, that's a comic book being published by Marvel Comics. I can't even believe that Norman Osborn's goblin character is just a Power Ranger suit at this point, right? That's mm-hmm. what this is? Okay. <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah. Anyways, yeah. So I'm reading Villain Saga Volume 13. This is Makoto Yukimura. I mean, I, I have to pick this if only because these books come out once every year. So, you know, I'm really hyped for it. We get a Villain Saga, like, honestly, I think once every, like, 15 months or something like that because this book is a monthly series out in japan and then of course it takes time to translate and all that other stuff uh but if you don't know the story of vinland saga is thorfinn he is a kid who is has a murderous bent on him he pursues a journey with his father's killer in order to take revenge and end that killer's life in a duel as an honorable warrior and viking and pay his father an homage uh the young man named thorfinn finds himself in a quest for revenge against his father's killer and Needless to say, the book goes a bit further than that. Um, after 13 or 12 volumes, the story has taken a huge directional shift, all for the better, as the story's focus on violence becomes the background portion of what the character Thorfinn is actually trying to accomplish, as he, in the story, recognizes that violence maybe not or maybe isn't the answer to all of life's quarrels, um, which is kind of fascinating because this is a historical fictional story that takes place in the time of Vikings when the Danes were taking over England and and basically conquering all of the English people, as well as dealing with the fact that there were Romans still uh, in England that were also trying to take over the land. Um, it's a really fascinating book. I think if you're not a fan of manga, you will 100% get sucked into this. The art style by uh, Yukimura is unparalleled. I cannot find a comic book or an artist period that draws as well as this guy does and depicts such violence without being like gross about it. You know, like there, there are artists who can do violence really well and it's just like blood and guts and gore and whatever. I'm thinking a lot of the books that come out from Avatar, if you ever read any of those Avatar press books, no, they're kind of gross. And I'm not just talking about Crossed. I'm talking about plenty of other violent books <laughs> that sure? they've published. Okay. Uh, but I think uh, Yukimura also manages to hyper like hype up the violence without making it gross. Like every scene and major fight has purpose in the story. It's not just fighting for the sake of fighting. Even if in the story, some of the characters would like to fight for the sake of fighting, right? If that makes any sense. Um, I think Vinland Saga is probably one of the most impressive pieces of manga work I've ever seen. Um, And this goes against stuff like Akira, which I've read a large chunk of. Like it is up there in terms of just impressive historical like storytelling as well as just unbelievable art uh so yeah if you if you get a chance try the first volume go to your library i'm certain that they have it um this was on our reading challenge i think this year uh the first volume and i cannot recommend it enough the 13th volume is coming out and i'm telling you you get into that first volume 
you will not be able to stop. And then you're going to do what I did. And you're going to cry for days when you realized there's not another volume for a year and a half. Um, So yeah, anyways, love this series. Uh, The question that comes down in this 13th file, and I'll just say one last thing about Vinland Saga. Is this the volume where Thorfinn's new dream is actually going to come true? That is what the the preview of this seems to show. So I'm very excited to get my hands on this. Um, anyways, and let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we can talk about the reason why I'm hungover today, which is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, a movie that we read or a movie that we watched and a book that we read as part of our Goodreads Book of the Month theme, which was made into a movie or show. So we will be right back after just a moment. This week on I Read Comic Books, we're going to be talking about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the film adapted from the comic book by Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill. This is part of our Goodreads Book of the Month series. This month's theme was made into a movie or TV show. So if you're looking for some comics that were made into movies and TV shows that maybe weren't the ones that you know of, like Watchmen and V for Vendetta and Spider-Man, X-Men, all that stupid stuff. If you want some maybe <laughs> lesser known titles, you should go check out our Goodreads thread. Uh, it's full of some wonderful picks. Kara, Paul, and I came together and we said, you know what, let's do something a little bit weird. Let's talk about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. So we got into this. Each of us picked three points that we wanted to talk about this comic and probably a little bit about the movie. So we're just going to go around the circle um, here and talk about those points. So I guess to get things started, Paul, what's your first point about this comic that you wanted to bring up today? Well, I, I do want to say, you know, right off the bat... We got to talk about Kevin O'Neill, who's the artist Please. on this book and uh, sadly passed away last month. A legendary artist, worked uh, a lot at 2000 AD. He did a lot of the um, Nemesis, the Warlock stuff with Pat Mills. He worked on Judge Dredd, obviously. He worked with Alan Moore um, on this book and as well as some comics in the 80s. Uh, very briefly, I want to tell one of my favorite little facts about Kevin O'Neill. Um, him and Alan Moore did a, a Green Lantern story called Tigers in the mid 80s. Um, and that story is kind of the seed that led to the Blackest Night event years and years later. Anyway, that story, Kevin O'Neill's artwork is really grotesque in that book. Um, that story, as a lot of his artwork is. And when that book was submitted to the Comics Code Authority for approval, they said that Kevin O'Neill's artwork is, itself was unsuitable. They couldn't publish it with the code approval. And they said, well, what could he change? Like, it's not anything you could change. It's the actual style itself is objectionable. So it's like, wow, his art style itself was found to be objectionable by the Comics Code Authority. They published the issue without the approval of the Comics Code, thankfully. And yeah, we see a little bit of that in this book. It's not as grotesque, but there's something about the way he draws. And it walks this very fine line between being like humorous, cartoony, and also utterly grotesque and scary at the same time. And there's a lot of oh, yeah. scenes in this book, especially the way he draws Mr. Hyde, you know, the character who's <laughs> Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, is so over the top. Um, I just love the, the book, the way he's able to balance the humor of the material and also make it kind of scary and unsettling at the same time. It's a truly monumental uh, example of his, his unique art style, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember reading through this and and being kind of confused i was expecting a different art style and i don't know why 
But as this story went on and on and on, I, I started to I grew to like it a lot more. Sure. I don't know. Kara, what, what were your thoughts on that? I uh, think that it's hilarious that you said we decided to do something weird and pick this one because <laughs> League of Extraordinary <laughs> Gentlemen is like a like semi formative comic slash film combo for me. And I'm like, sure. you're oh, like, this that? is weird. And I'm like, this is the first thing I thought of. What is wrong with you? <laughs> like, of course, this one. So, well, this is I, the reason I say it's a little weird is because I feel like when people think of like, oh, let's talk about something that was adapted for the screen or for TV, they don't jump to this movie because ah, we'll talk about it later. Because... How how poorly uh, adapted this movie or this book was. Yeah. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, that's because they weren't a preteen slash teenage girl when this came out and all your yeah. friends were talking about how hot Shane West was. So we had to see this movie. Like, <laughs> that's why this isn't jumping to the top of the pile for you. Context, Mike. Sure. Context. Sure. Um, so I and this was also this film came out um, a couple years before I was like really into reading comics on the regular like I was reading comics like I've always been reading comics mm -hmm. but this was before I was like mm -hmm. into like monthlies and I was getting books from the library and at some point I did come across um, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen I'm pretty sure this was my first exposure to Alan Moore's work and reading this comic as a teenager was challenging because alan moore does not pull punches in this book he expects you to be mm -hmm. on his level with his level of cultural and historical references he's not <laughs> pausing to exposit anything there's like no helpful dialogue whatsoever he's just name dropping people that like if you know about them you're like oh that's rad as hell but if you don't know about them you're like who the hell is Alan Quatermain and why do I care? So sure. it was, yeah. and remember, this is like pre-Wikipedia being a thing. So if you wanted to find out who was who in something this dense, you had to like, I want you to picture fan sites with lurid colored backgrounds and contrasting text in Times New Roman and hyperlinks mm -hmm. underlined. Like this is the part of the sure. internet we're on, children. So yeah. um, you don't have to talk down to our audience. They, they're all like in their 30s, too, Kara. Like that's who listening to the show. I think the only person who's not is maybe Matt. I would Matt, like and to we assume love that our listenership is wide and varied, Michael. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, if you're not in your 30s, uh, give us a call. Send us an email, ircbpodcast.com. Let us know if you're not in your 30s. Oh, my God. So <laughs> anyway, so I read this book. And for me, reading this was like, being really drawn into the dense art. And I like that Paul used the word grotesque to describe it because that's what leapt to mind when I was trying to figure out how to explain how I felt about this art. I, I actually picked up this comic, not knowing that this was the prompt that we were talking about a few weeks ago, because I thought, man, it is a cold winter night and it is dark at 5 p.m. What do I want to stick in front of my eyeballs? And the answer was <laughs> Kevin O'Neill's version of Victorian <laughs> London. <laughs> like, Hell yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's dark, it's twisted, it's steampunky. It's like all these fantastical things where you're thinking, man, what if that's what it was like? And it just yeah. it has a really firm sense of place. So that art for me was something that just it's like burned in my brain because I read it at sure. this early impressionable age and also want to keep revisiting it because it's like it's a place you can visit again. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I guess, I, I mean, very briefly, we should maybe explain what the book is about. So anyone yes. Hasn't read it. Oh, yeah, <laughs> so, I guess. Jesus. Listen, I, so I don't know what's going on today. It's set in uh, 1899 in Victorian England, and it's basically a superhero team, but the superheroes are made up of literary characters of the time. So you have... Um, Mina Harker from Dracula. You have Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, Alan Quartermain, uh, the Invisible Man, um, uh, Captain Nemo. So these type of like literary characters, but Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill are doing a superhero version of that. And what I think was really great is that, like you said, Kara, like O'Neill's artwork, it's kind of grimy and dirty. The way he draws the cityscape, the crowds of people, like everyone's kind Mm -hmm. of dirty looking. Like what you picture of like sort of early industrial England and London to look like. And on top of that, he's such a great cartoonist. He's able to give all of these characters a very distinct feel. I love all of the sort of pages where he's drawing the invisible man doing stuff and you can't draw the invisible man. There's nothing there, yeah. but just like close suspended midair or like knives. And it's like, and you have to rely on context clues to figure out, are they actually talking to the invisible man? There's a couple of scenes where like, characters are talking to him. And they, they realize, Oh, he's not there anymore. Yeah, and there's like this yeah. sort of like cartoony humor to it. At the same time, it is a sort of dark and grimy grotesque. It's a wonderful balancing act that I think Kevin O'Neill did his entire career. And this is one of the best examples of it, I think. Let's pull out yeah. the word sinister. <laughs> yeah. Sinister. Well, yeah, there's definitely moments where you see like, like when they're trying to port- portray something as like evil and bad, like he triples down on that right and honestly there's no one good in this book and so like (laughs) when we get the reveal of like who mr m is you know all the i mean i guess like full spoilers should reorganize this entire episode i'm sorry (laughs) like it's gonna be a mess for listeners out there but uh you know when we realize who mr m is when we see moriarty and he's hunched over and he's this little like that's exactly who i picture when i think of like moriarty like as a a literary literary character you picture you know um He's like a walnut with legs. Yeah, he's just a little <laughs> he's just a little ball of a man who's just gonna kill you good. Uh yeah, no, and O'Neill, I think, nails that. Like anytime you need to understand how a character is feeling, you don't need Moore's words for it, which I really right. appreciated. O'Neill's art does all the speaking for how the character is feeling. Moore is just here to like give them dialogue to drive the story forward. They don't need to say, Oh, I'm feeling so tired, and then they also look tired. It's like Moore's drawing them looking like shits, or O'Neill's drawing them look like shit, so they must feel pretty bad. <laughs> like when we when we see Quartermain go from like his opium addicted bedridden self to him as the hero, it's night and day. It's two different yeah. characters almost, but clearly it's because he was addicted to opium and it was destroying his body. And so after the few days of just cold rehab that he has on Nemo's ship, uh, he comes back and he's back <laughs> to his old self, which I, I thought was a cool way to you like they only mention it one time and yet they didn't have to bring it up over and over because O'Neill's art is doing all this. Be- Again, it's yeah. this perfect combination of, of art and, and writing coming together, but we should not harp on this art all day. We do need to get to the other, <laughs> other points. So Kara, what's, what's your first point that you wanted to bring up and it can't be Kevin O'Neill. <laughs> okay. Um, I am going to do some compare contrast between the film and the comic, because the thing that stood okay. out the most to me is the girl one. There is one lady in this comic book and film because... Well, we haven't gotten to my third point yet, so don't you worry. (laughs) Okay. So, um, you know, uh, in in the comic book, as part of this lineup, Mina Murray, who, again, this is like uh, at least 15 years before I actually read the novel Dracula. So in literary fiction, in the novel Dracula, which if you haven't read it, 
please get on that. It is legitimately good. It's it like I don't know what you're imagining in terms of like dense prose or whatever like thing you're intimidating yourself about it. It's fire. This novel is so freaking good. Read it now. <laughs> Read it now. So Mina Mina Harker, her name is Harker in the book because she's married to Jonathan Harker and the two of them are uh, involved in figuring out what this whole Dracula deal is and working with Van Helsing. You might have heard of him in defeating Dracula. So <laughs> during the spoilers for a 150 year old book, Mina gets oh my bit. God. <laughs> Mina gets bit by Dracula, right? So in so we're seeing her in League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the comic, after this has happened, we are not told in like any clear way um, in this first volume that she's had like a, a vampire deal thing going on. We just know that her name is Mina Murray and her husband divorced her because something terrible happened. Then the shame of it all. Da, da, da. And she's the leader of this team, like very clearly <laughs> in charge. She has kind of her character that Alan Moore gives her is kind of like, a very fussy Mary Poppins type, almost like mm -hmm. very nannyish, very like these foolish men that I have to wrangle, like get them all in line. Yeah. So um, there's a, obviously a lot to unpack there, but I think it's very much keeping in this trope of like British men are just school children who just want nanny to like pay attention to them and maybe slap them around a little bit that we see in a lot of <laughs> sure. different media. Okay. So she fits that trope very nicely. Um, but I always liked her because she was like very self-assured and in control. And in this comic, we don't see her do any vampire shit. We like don't see her with mm -hmm. fangs. We don't see well, there's like no indication that she's actually a vampire unless you have read Dracula and know who she is already. She's using her maiden name, Murray, because her foolish husband divorced her because he's a dick. And it's like, OK, <laughs> well, I. I read that as like there was like this implied like there had been some sort of sexual assault or something, right? Like some yeah. some man had got, had gotten with her in some capacity, and so her husband divorced her because of it. And she was like, "Well, there's this shame of my marriage, right?" And I, of course, that's the implication. But it spoilers, Dracula fucking turned her into a vampire. Okay, but you know, with uh, with vampirism, the 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 erotic overtones of a vampire like biting your neck like pulling out some of your life force and creating oh, sort yeah. of an ecstatic yeah, moment yeah, yeah. like yes uh, that's equivalent that's equivalent to what they're doing but i liked that it didn't matter like her strength wasn't her being a vampire her strength in this mm -hmm. book was her yep. being a good leader a good organizer like like you know to to borrow from a previous snl skit that just get shit done so yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> um, so, like, that's the vibe. And in the film, contrast, uh, mm -hmm. her name is Mina Harker. So they call her Mrs. Harker. They say her husband has died. So instead of the whole, like, we don't have to get into this whole shame thing. Why is your husband divorced? Meh. It's just, you're no, you're still keeping your married name. We're making it very, very, very clear right away that you are a vampire and Dracula bit you mm -hmm. and you were fighting. Like, they're front-loading all the stuff, which I get. Film is a different language than comic books. You, need, you want to have the cool, sexy vampire lady do cool, sexy vampire stuff in your action <laughs> film for boys. I get it. Um, but she's not the team lead. Alan Quatermain is the team lead. 
She well, is there yeah. to be the sexy vampire yeah. in the black. Like I am so like the the <laughs> nicest thing I can say is I'm pleased they didn't stick her in like a skin tight corset. Like she is, but she's also wearing a long sleeve shirt and long pants under right. it. So I guess there's right. that, which feels really like good for an early 2000s superhero film with a vampire <laughs> right. lady in it. <laughs> so, right. Um. So watching it had been a while since I'd seen the film. So reading the comic and then watching the film back to the back, I'm like, you did my girl Mina dirty. Like, how dare you? <laughs> she went from mm-hmm. the the leader of this team just from her brain to she's the body. And also we're going to give her like sexy backstory with one of the other immortal characters. And sure. like, sure. it just, it yeah. just felt like there was no reason for her character to be made less than except for, ah, she's the girl one. Let's make her hot. Well, <laughs> that and they had Sean Connery in this movie, and he what he so Kelly and I watched this last night, and her first question was, "Wait, wait." So they bring this guy on, and then he has no idea what's going on, but he suddenly becomes the leader of the team. Like we were mm-hmm. both really confused because Miss Harker clearly knew what was going on. Like she seemed way in control, and then all of a sudden Sean Connery's like, "Don't worry about it, stupid woman." Like it, it, I was like, he didn't even have to act for this scene. He's just being Sean, He's Connery. Just being Sean Connery. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, my yeah. my Sean Connery impression is terrible. But I won't justify no. it because uh, he's a garbage person. So it's spot on. Um, I very briefly, it may be worth noting that the the reason that they front load the film with the vampire content is because it was directed by Stephen Norrington, who also directed the greatest vampire film ever made, Blade. I can't <laughs> believe this. Okay, so okay, there's before a whole we get other discussion deep, to be had about that. I mean, that's we talked. Yeah, we'll save it to the end. We'll save it to the end. We'll save it to the oh, end. We talked uh, about Blade for the IRCB Movie Club. You can find that on Patreon. It's an yes. ma- absolute <laughs> masterpiece, which makes this movie, The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, much more confusing. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. I feel like one thing that we all have in common in our list of things that we liked about this comic is that the team dynamic, right? Because yeah. we're talking about a, a, a superhero team, but again, it's a superhero team of literary characters, and they're all kind of terrible people. It's a very yeah. motley crew. They've all got things in the past that they don't want to talk about. Kind of like I mean, the, the one, like you literally have. The, I love that they make the Invisible Man like the biggest creep because of course he's going to be an absolute biggest creep, creep, right? He's just like st- straight up a rapist in this yeah. book, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like this, this is what my first point was like. They're just a bunch of bastards. Like there's no, no redeem. redeemable about nothing redeemable about anybody except for maybe Mrs. Murray, but like we don't even really get into her backstory in this volume, so I don't even know what happens. But like, yeah, every time someone shows up, it's like, oh, he's worse than the last one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, even even Nemo, who is like he's he's I I think he's the coolest character in the book. That's what my second point is. Spoilers, I'm just gonna reveal that. Uh even he is kind of like he takes no nonsense, he's not willing to like put up for the team or whatever. But I also respected he's just like i'm not playing a manservant anymore i'm not playing someone's like helper like you can't make me do this he's like yeah. so anti-nationalist i love it uh, but at the same time like he's got this this dark twistedness of about him that i think lines up with everybody else so but again to your point paul i love the mm-hmm. team dynamic it's just that they're all so awful <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that, like again the, the the main story here is that they're brought together by this character named m and also there's a reference to the guy the mediary between m their benefactor and the team themselves is a guy named uh capian bond which again mm-hmm. we'll come back later if you read deeper into this series because there's like four volumes of this stuff uh, james bond becomes a character you know in the in the story larger story cool, cool. and it turns out that's just a code name that different people have used anyway uh but yeah. 
you get all that. And then by the end, you get you, the the reveal that M, they assumed it was Mycraft Holmes, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Sherlock Holmes' brother, turns out to be Moriarty. It's like, it's such a stock twist, but I think the characters are so complex and interesting. The team dynamic works that even this sort of obvious story trope like that is very interesting because when they realize it, that kind of changes everything among the team. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think it's a very subtle work, uh, uh, which did not translate to the film. I'll put it that way. There's a subtlety of <laughs> yeah, this comic yeah. that somehow got missed when they turned it live action. Yeah. <laughs> but but still, like I, that that team dynamic is is really yeah. fun. And <laughs> I think once you once you get past all the extremely sharp edges of these characters, uh <laughs> th- it does make for an interesting like dynamic team where they they work together really well. And of course, this is mostly just a credit to Moore's writing, right? I think Moore yeah. has crafted a really intricate, smart story that falls into a lot of problematic areas despite it being coming out in like what 99 this is when the mm-hmm. first volume came out it still i feel like comes together as a really cohesive story that feels super satisfying in the end like despite yeah. not having the literary super well-read knowledge that i never have for these kinds of books i still was able to follow along and enjoy everything because who these characters were how they were depicted in their previous work didn't matter because more gets it allows or uses his writing to reflect who they were enough so that I, I could follow yeah. every beat that was going on. I understood who every character was based off of a handful of interactive moments. And then I was fine from there. Um, it's really good. I, I, I love that, even though they're all shitheads, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, that was kind of my first point. It sounds like, Paul, that yeah. was your second point. So I guess, Kara, yeah. let's let's get into your second point here. Ah, my <laughs> second point, I will be building off everything you just said to talk a little okay. bit more about <laughs> contrasting the team lineup with a. Uh, the film and the comics, because in the film, they do change the team lineup a little bit. Mm-hmm. So they add the characters, Dorian Gray and Tom Sawyer to the squad, but like a grown up Tom Sawyer. And he works for the CIA. Uh-huh. And yep. so yep. actually, Dorian Gray was the character I remembered the most from this film. I think that was my first. Same. Yeah, I think that this was like my first exposure to him as a literary character in general. So I think it's interesting that he's not in the comic, but they set him up the best in the film. And I was Mm -hmm. thinking about it and I was like, why is Dorian Gray added to this lineup? And the answer seems to be all the other like shitty characters that exist in the comic. They are the good guy in this film because it's an action movie. You need your heroes. You need your villains. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to flesh out how terrible everybody is and how self-interested they are. They just need the good guys and the bad guys. So Dorian Gray fills this need to show that these are like morally corrupt characters in a lot of ways. But he gets to be a bad guy instead of... um, I guess they didn't even want to go there with the Invisible Man because he's like so gross that they couldn't even yeah. begin yeah, to yeah. think about how to do that. So they need all right. We need we need a hot guy who can be the bad guy and be an age appropriate looking love interest for the vampire lady because we can't have her and Sean Connery boning because that would be inappropriate in our children's <laughs> right. film for teen boys. I guess. So, so I guess like. I get why they did that change from a filmmaking standpoint. They did it. They did a genre swap. They needed to like make the language of filmmaking very clear with their like less than two hour runtime. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And I guess (laughs) they added 
Tom Sawyer as a character um, so that they could have an American in there, which I guess yep. they felt this need mm-hmm. to appeal to an American audience. And I'm like, we'll watch it. You, you have explosions. We'll watch that. Like, I don't know what <laughs> you need to have. Somebody- well, this is 2003. This is pre Iron Man. This is when people <laughs> cared about film. I don't know what I'm saying. I don't, <laughs> I don't I no. No, <laughs> this no, is this is around the time of the first Fantastic Four films. I don't think we can you're use right. that argument. So, you're right, you're right. All right. So, and I think, and Tom Sawyer fulfills the function of giving Alan Quatermain sort of an emotional arc in this film. He's like a stand-in son figure. Alan Quatermain like teaches him how to shoot and like get sad when he says, "Did you teach your son how to do this?" So, and like yeah. you know, because Alan Quatermain can't have his emotional arc with Mina because that would be like age inappropriate or whatever i guess they were like hey alan moore i know you made the really old guy bang the hot young lady but we're not doing that in our movie for teenage boys <laughs> so like he's and- like damn it but i'm the old the old hot old man i'm supposed to bang the young girl that's I guess, no, I'm, just kidding. I'm sure sean connery would have been fine with it but like yeah yeah. I, yeah yeah I get why they why they changed this but um it was interesting that the characters that i remembered most from the film don't even exist in the comic book and so on the rewatch i was like oh i get it you did this because you needed everything to be more black and white and less gray but um (laughs) well there's plenty of gray in the movie well yeah (laughs) (laughs) but like like you were saying before nemo all the dialogue about nemo where you can in the comic where he's bitter and angry and anti-colonist and just so done with humanity in general all of that is removed from this film the one hint that we get that he's maybe not happy with the status quo is them being like he worships kali the god of death my goodness and it's like okay (laughs) then we never follow up on that point they're just like he's doing weird stuff with his religion Uh, and that's it that's all of it it's like yeah so or they there's no sexual assault or drugs in this film which again Mm -hmm. i get it this film was definitely marketed and made for teenage boys but like the comic those are such huge parts of these character backstories and like where we find them (laughs) and how messed up they are and why the invisible man like like really just oh man that guy just sucks (laughs) but like just the worst worst. so again i get why they made these changes but it's interesting to see how when you really think about it, they're totally different stories. They're totally different genres. They're totally different pieces of media. It's almost like you can't even really compare the film and the comic because aside from like some of the names that they use, the aesthetics, the characterizations, and like the roles that these characters play in the plot are pretty different from each other. Yeah. I, well, I think that kind of leads into my last point I want to make here is that yeah. what I really like about the comic is that Moore and O'Neill not just set it in Victorian England, not just use characters that were existed at the time, but it's told in the style of stories at that time, which I mean, Mike could kind of hint that there's some stuff that might be problematic, but that's, mm-hmm. I think that's, I'm not to defend that, but to say Moore is trying to write a story in the same style as a story that came out in 1899 would sound, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, like, it's if, the ever present issue of like, do you go period accurate and include right. all the not, you know, the non niceties yeah. or do you try to like polish a different, you know, thing? It, it's, it's always problematic. Yeah. 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 But I think it's kind of more interesting is the way that, um, 
it's set up. There's a lot of like caption boxes, particularly the way it's set up the first issue, the first page of each issue. Like there's like a narrator and it's written as sort of over the top flowery language. Yeah. yeah, You know, the, if you get the trade, the first page has the credits and it's written in the way like a newspaper would credit someone like a circus performance kind of thing. Like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. there's a commitment to the bit saying like, this is Victorian literature. Yes. It's superhero uh, team up, but it's set as Victorian literature, you know, it's presented yeah. in this way. And if you keep going, and again, I think this book kind of gets more interesting as it goes on, because by the time you get to like the third volume, which I think is Century, you get, there's a section Black that's dossier. set in 19... 19- Black Dossier. Oh, Black Dossier. Yep. There's there's a section where it's set in like 1969 England, and it's like the swing in 60s. Oh, yeah. And it's like, I suddenly get all of the pop culture references then where I'm not getting yeah, yeah, any yeah. of the ones here, but well, uh, I like, I like the Alan commitment Moore. to that. Yeah. <laughs> Only Ellen Moore would be like, you know what? I'm going to write a book for folks that really understand 1899. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. A hundred yeah. years later, mind you, right? So he's writing a book in 1999 um, that's about 1898, which I think is a really funny idea, right? Yeah. To, to, to try to tell this century story, which I think is so funny because, of course, it's the turn of the century in 1999. It's the turn of the millennium in 1999. And in the story of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, they're talking about the turn of the century being this huge thing where they're going to build this flying machine. All of these things are going to change. The The world yeah. is changing. I really liked that parallel uh, that I think he was trying to make, or I guess I'm making that p- connection right now as we're talking. I did not make that connection as I, I was reading there. it. Yeah. But uh, nonetheless, I think it's it's really cool to see that. But again, it's so goofy to think about. I'm writing a story <laughs> that only folks from 1899 <laughs> It's like, oh, get, you know, like middle finger to you, Alan Moore. <laughs> Just wait till you get to, uh, I think, uh, Tempest is the last volume where you get the Harry Potter analog character shows up. That's some fun stuff. That's the unwritten, right? Oh, no, that's a different comic. Yeah, (laughs) that's a different Uh. book. Uh, But but I think it was interesting, like, kind of to pick up the point that Carol was making there, where the difference between these these adaptations or these presentations of materials, like, Moore and O'Neill are basically saying, we're presenting this as Victorian literature in Mm -hmm. comic book form. And the film is like is presented as an action film made in 2003. You know what I mean? Like right. there's no attempt to have that sort of nuance. There's a very subtle like implication that like, oh, things are about to change. And all that means is suddenly they have machine guns for some reason in the movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's not this <laughs> yeah. sort of like overarching sense of like the world is on the 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 edge of like a new era or a new epoch that you kind of get mm-hmm. from the comic. But that's one thing I do enjoy not just in this volume, but again, as the comic goes on, there's an attempt to match the presentation to the material being presented, which I think is very, very clever. Yeah. I guess, uh, Kara, what's your what's your third point here? And because I think you and I kind of have a, a similar third point in a little bit. Great, because I'm about to change mine entirely from what I was originally going to say. So you can just <laughs> run with your third one. I would like to Perfect. build off a little bit what Paul was just talking about with all of a sudden there are machine guns for some reason, because again, (laughs) it's been a while since I'd seen this movie. And again, in the comic, a lot of the majority of the first volume takes place in London. And a lot of the action takes place in the area Limehouse, which if you're familiar with Victorian British literature is a wretched hive of scum and villainy, but is yeah. also yeah. swarming with people from China. And so there's a lot yeah. of exoticism mm-hmm. and um, Orientalism and reading, rereading the comic. I had forgotten, uh, like, you know, going back to Kevin O'Neill's art style and is like dancing on the edge of caricature with looking at a lot of the depictions of these like 
smeary opium dens and these mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like Chinese gangsters living in London plying their drug trade. And I was like, ooh, are we where where are we in in the in the this is okay versus this is like racially insensitive thing. And then I was like, but the whole book, he makes everyone look gross, but is it still like not okay? So I was kind of going like the, we think for the first half of the comic book that the main antagonist is this like Chinese gangster drug Lord who's stolen this. I was just about to say unobtainium, but I know that's the wrong unobtainium. No, it's fine. It's fine. (laughs) Steal the thing so that he can make his airship fly and do aerial warfare and and then we find out that it's just Moriarty out for his own personal criminal interest using the veneer of state sanctioned mercenaries to do his bidding mm-hmm. for him tale as old mm-hmm. as time so it's, you know, it's just, so i get again from a filmmaker pers- i keep saying again but this is like a really the more things change the more they say the same kind of story here I get the impulse of the filmmakers to, instead of saying, we're going to go to Limehouse and not be racist about mm. it, that their impulse yeah. was, let's make it about the Germans. World War II coming up, folks. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like So in the film, the bad guys are implied to be Germany going towards World War One, And revisiting this film, I thought, I've seen this before. Where have I seen this before? The answer is fucking everywhere, man. Like, just keep, yeah, stop yeah, doing this yeah, same story. But yeah. most recently in um, the Sherlock Holmes Game of Shadows uh, film with Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law. And mm-hmm. again, same thing. Leading into the new century and the bad guys are the Germans. And you're thinking, wait, World War II is not happening for another, like... 14 years and they're like psych we're doing it now and you're like oh no thank god the heroes were there to save the day and it's the same thing and i'm like i get it it's easy storytelling most western audiences are going to recognize like germany is the bad guys in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. i understand it but also god it's lazy god it's so so lazy (laughs) well right but it's like the alternative is like what we do we do a film where it's about like a bunch of nameless folks from like Asia who are attacking and then it becomes like really problematic because of course mm-hmm. it's 2003 and like no one knows how to like do a story like that without making it just like nonstop stereotyping and like chances are people would have like bad accents or like it would just be really gross and bad you know no, they would have um, they would have hired Jackie Chan and he would have just been trying to do his best while they were saying yeah do the kung fu stuff and he'd be like that's no again this all sounds pretty bad no I know I'm not saying they should have done that I'm saying that's what they would yeah is there a way we could have done there's a bad guy but the real bad guy's your boss without going into the Mm -hmm. it's the Germans thing yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I guess, I mean, it's kind of interesting. The way the story in the comic ends, the team is kind of, like, ineffective. Like, they don't really save the day so much. Like, mm-hmm. they, like, the bad guy ends up with the unobtainium, right? And the, yeah. the way he basically is defeated because it's, like, a, something that floats and he basically isn't able to control it and he floats away. And then, like, yeah, all of the people in the in, in uh, Limehouse, the, the Chinese immigrants there, like, they see this airship and they launch their own attack and the team is just kind of in the middle. It's like, oh, we just didn't like, basically didn't do anything, which is, again, speaks to the sort of oh. the Motley crew version of the team where it's like they don't get along. So of course they're not effective. Like, so. yeah, I saw that more like 
this is why um my favorite of the uh why can I not remember the first one? Mocking Jay, Catching Fire, the uh, Hunger that Games. That one. <laughs> this is my my <laughs> okay. favorite okay. Hunger Games book is everyone else's least favorite one, which is the last one, and everyone hates it because Katniss, the protagonist, doesn't do anything. All this action is just happening around her, and I'm like, sure. yeah. yeah, that's war. There's no protagonist <laughs> right. in war. Yeah. Things are yeah. just yeah. awful and chaotic all the time. Like this is actually kind of probably realistic for a young adult dystopian novel. Like so, sure. so that applied to this comic book where our heroes are just at the end trying to save themselves, which has been honestly their prerogative and motivation the entire time. Sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that tracks with their characters, <laughs> the types of story that we're in. Got it. And then you know the film, they have to be the heroes, so they have to save the day. Right. Yeah, yeah. Which I guess. Brings to my last point, right? And we'll use this, I guess, to wrap up the show because this is probably this is a long episode. We're just going long recently, everyone. I hope you're excited about it. I I was kind of shocked at how different this was from the movie, but mostly I was impressed by how equally problematic it was. Um, <laughs> in, sure. in in comparison, right? I mean, we talked about it a lot. I think some of the depictions O'Neill gives in this movie is a little it's that borderline like i'm not sure like is this offensive is this accurate i don't really know is like the opening bits in cairo right as they go to get quartermain like everybody in in cairo kind of looks like this like stereotypical this is what people in like egypt look like um i don't know maybe that is period accurate i don't know and then when we get to like the into limetown it's the same thing but um or limehouse excuse me uh limetown totally different podcast (laughs) but uh yeah so uh i don't know i i I feel like the the depiction of everything in the movie was kind of the same, right? Like we get these like, I guess like there's no standard looking like German like outfits. No one's dressing up like SS officers or anything. But also, you know, I think the depiction, the, the way that Dorian Gray talks to people, the way that Sean Connery didn't have to act. He just got to be disrespectful to the one <laughs> woman in the movie. Uh, you know, like there's there's just a lot of like weirdness that I felt was kind of, I don't know, inappropriate and weird. But again, it's like, it's of the time, so it's okay. But that's not really it. I just I kind of felt yucky about it. Sure. But yeah, I don't know. I felt like this movie released in 2003 is just, it was kind of bland, which I guess leads into like the final bits of, <laughs> I'm trying to find like a silver lining of liking this movie. And I think the only thing for me was the practical effects when Hyde transform, or Jekyll and Hyde transform into each other um, sure. was probably like it was straight up John Carpenter crazy, the fly shit, right? <laughs> like they do these flashes of like, this man being just mangled and growing and shrinking. Um, I love that. And that's probably like the only high point of the movie that I can think of because <laughs> I couldn't really stand anything. I couldn't find any anything else to really like because even the whole Sean Connery teaching Tom Sawyer how to shoot a gun had no weight to it. And they, you know what they could have done? You know what? The, and I was sitting there and I'm watching the movie and I was so mad about mm-hmm. this, which is uh, why after we finished recording, I'm going to tell you guys about my brand new podcast idea that you won't even believe it's going to be the funniest <laughs> thing in the world. But um. I was sitting there and I was like, you know what? Sean Connery's character, Quartermain talks about all that, spending all this time in Africa. And he's like, you know, Tom, in order to find the best shot, you've got to like feel it out. Blah, blah. It's so stupid, so ephemeral, so dumb, right? Which force. I think is the point. But also, 
why didn't he say something like find peace in your mind find a place that gives you peace right and then there's like a moment of sean connery sitting in the gun and he breathes and then he's like in the plains of africa or something like that because he loves africa so much and then he like shoots hits the thing and then later in the movie when tom needs to make that shot to shoot the bad guy he like breathes he hasn't been able to find that moment and then we like snap to him riding down the mississippi river on a boat like <laughs> it's a quiet and it's like wouldn't that have oh, been so much more powerful that would have been it's rad. like yeah. these guys do they not know how to fucking write a movie no it was so frustrating <laughs> no character had any moment the only character that was cool was dorian gray and it's only because this picture of dorian gray is probably one of the coolest stories you can ever read that character is inherently cool because that story is inherently cool that's the only thing this movie had going for me i have two <sighs> tiny final points Okay. Oh my gosh. All right, go ahead. Two go tiny ahead. final points. One, um, delighted to realize that the dude in the film who plays Moriarty is the same dude who's the antagonist in Moulin Rouge that I think came out the same year. So that was just like a great year for Richard Roxburgh being gross. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Two, uh, if you haven't read League of Extraordinary Gentlemen volume two or like you don't really want to read it, but like you kind of want to see this art we're talking about. Look at the first few pages of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Volume 2, because Kevin O'Neill does one of, I think, my favorite wordless sequences in comics ever, introducing some characters on the planet Mars. It's bonkers. (laughs) I forgot that Mm -hmm. there were explosions on Mars that they're like, oh, don't worry, we're going to figure that out the next volume. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I could go on a rant forever. Paul, do you have yeah. any final thoughts about the movie here you want to talk or the comic you want to talk about? here? Um, it was fun to re- reread the comic. I read through the whole run of these comics of maybe a year or two ago and had a blast. Oh, cool. So I kind of like going back and like I think now I get more of the references, which makes it more fun to read and kind of see like what more is pulling from. Um, I never saw the movie until this past weekend. Um, I had it on the background. I wasn't paying that much attention, but that's like, fine. Like you said, like, <laughs> I think the most memorable character is. Mr. Hyde, because like he kind of is grotesque and over the top, and I again I love the way Kevin O'Neill draws him. He basically is the Hulk. I mean, yeah. it's it's great. Yeah, the Hulk in the little tiny suit that gets ripped up when every time he changes. But um, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I, th- I think the film is everything I don't like about action movies that came out in the early two thousands. So <laughs> that's, you that's a succinct you're telling assessment. me that that them taking the really cool ship design that O'Neill did and turning it into the Dagger of the Sea, which is this. <sighs> An imperceptibly large thing that can also yeah. somehow swim up the Thames without it hitting the bottom and can go right into Ven- Venice without actually touching it. Like, <laughs> except for the part where it becomes a part of the plot. All right, anyways, a um, <laughs> lot of problems with that movie, guys. I had a lot of problems. And Kelly and I were sitting here screaming, and I just kept pounding whiskey like it was my job. Every time I got mad, <laughs> I was just taking a sip out of my drink. Um, dangerous and, game uh, there, Mike. It was, it was a very dangerous game. But uh, I guess thank you guys for... for putting up with this movie but more importantly <laughs> forcing me to actually read this comic which I, I'm very glad that I did because I'm excited to read the rest of them I've got them all sitting on my account on Amazon so I'm ready to, to dig into those but you know to wrap things up I will say next week's episode is Kara and Danny talking about a bunch of comic mo- or comic books uh, about Christmas which is very exciting I, I listened to this episode and it's it's a whole heck of a lot of fun um, you can always find us on Twitter and Instagram and TikTok Discord Goodreads YouTube and Twitch because we're going to be doing these live episodes on December 27th don't forget about it make sure you're there 8 p.m eastern standard make sure to show up and say hi to me and danny and brian we're gonna be doing some really funky business i have no idea what yet but (laughs) it's mostly just just to have fun and talk about comic books so look forward to that 
I didn't say it three times, so I'm going to say it twice now. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast. <laughs> Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast uh, to, to get access to all sorts of stuff like the IRCB movie club, Saga of Saga, Micah Paul Reed, Doom Patrol, and so much more. Uh, Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. Xander flies across the barriers of time and space seeking a bright new dawn. I want to say thank you to Kara and Paul for joining me on this week's episode. Thank you to Danny for proof listening. Thank you to everyone in the Discord for hanging out and saying hi. And thank you to the listener. You, the person who listened all the way to the end of this podcast. I'm so proud of you. Thank you for doing that. Until next time, comics are good and so are you. Yeah.